Diversity and inclusion, a hot topic in the world right now. But knowing how and where to begin to make a tangible difference can be tricky. That's why we created this podcast. By drawing on the experience of thought leaders across Canada, we hope to create awareness, showcase a variety of perspectives, and inspire courage for all of us to create more diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplaces and communities for all. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Pham, Executive Director of the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. Welcome to Leader Talks. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work and play on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika Kanai Bikani, and the Tsutina, the Yare Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation of Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing this season's first guest, Tim Fox, Vice President of Indigenous Relations and Equity Strategy at the Calgary Foundation. Tim is a proud member of the Blackfoot Confederacy from the Kenai Reserve, located two hours south of Calgary. Mr. Fox is passionate about incorporating work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Racial Equity both within his workplace and in the broader community. And I have known Tim for quite some time as well, and I have been always very inspired by his great work. So welcome, Tim. We're so happy to have you here with us today for our first podcast. First, I'd like to ask you a little bit about yourself. You know, who are you? And tell us a little bit about why this work of truth and reconciliation is so important to you and your work. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for, for having me as your first guest. I feel really honored to uh, set the tone, I guess, for conversations like this. But right off the bat, I'll just introduce you in my language, which is Blackfoot. So I'll say, Oki, Nistuni, Danigun, Aidui, Saugasum. And I just shared with you a name that was gifted to me by an elder in my community, which is the Kainai Nation, the Blood Reserve. And yeah, I grew up there. My family comes from the Igebo Geeks clan which in English translates to the Many Children's Clan. I feel like that's a big part of who I am, where I come from. I grew up on the reserve, was challenged in many ways, but also experienced a lot of gifts and knowledge and insights from my grandparents and my extended family and all that kind of stuff. So it it makes up a huge part of who I am. I feel like secondly, next to that, I am a father of a 10-year-old daughter and just sort of is a huge motivator behind this work that I'm doing. And then lastly, since 2017, I have been working for a settler-created philanthropic organization called the Calgary Foundation, just tasked to lead a change process and find ways to mobilize the work of reconciliation and then most recently the work of racial equity. All three of those identifiers, I guess, really contribute to why I do the work that I do. Growing up on the reserve, I was very acutely aware of the impacts that history has, especially when you are being raised by two residential school survivors. And it's sort of in your bloodline. My grandmother was a janitor at the local residential school on the blood reserve. And I just recall her being one of the most hardworking people that I I knew. So she raised 11 children, all of which went to residential schools. Later on in life, she would 
be cleaning the residential schools, come home, raise children, and then also do farming. And she was just a really kind person, just really kind-natured person. I feel like the work that I do now, it requires you to have a lot of heavy conversations. It requires you to, especially in this day and age with all of these discoveries, and uh, I'll likely be touching on, on this conversation a lot more, but there's a need for a lot of truth-telling. So I really lean on the values that I witnessed in my grandmother, who no matter how hard her days were, and I'm sure they were, having to sort of be inside this institution that was so damaging and harmful to her and her children, and to come home at the end of the day and just exude all of this kindness and love. I never seen her get mad or angry or anything like that. So I really reflect on that in the work that I do right now. I had a fractured relationship with my parents growing up and I resented them for a lot of the things that they did. It wasn't until I became a young adult that I began to realize their life experiences as residential school survivors. And like many people across the country, I didn't begin to learn about the impacts or the severity of the residential school system until later on in life. And it empowered me to really be less resentful towards my parents. I sort of had this realization that everything I went through, everything that they exposed me to as a child was just a fraction of what they had to go through. But that took a while for me to realize and understand. Yeah, so what I'm trying to say is growing up in that way, you are really aware of the impacts of history. You're aware of the impacts of intergenerational trauma, although I didn't I wasn't able to name it at that time growing up. I wasn't able to call it out. I was just experiencing it. I was experiencing a lot of shame. I struggled with why my parents decided to send me to school off reserve because there was a fully functional school on reserve. Little did I know that it was a residential school and their negative life experiences and their trauma had them make the decision to send me to school off reserve. They were very disconnected from my educational journey, which is another reason why I resented them. They never would come to school plays or parent-teacher interviews and all that kind of stuff. So there's just a lot going on. My shame was amplified by the racism and discrimination I experienced, even from teachers. So my white teachers, I was bused into the nearest town from our reserve. And so the majority of my classmates were white settlers. I was a child that sat at the back of the class. I kept to myself. I didn't really have a whole lot of friends. And it wasn't because I didn't understand lessons that were being taught to me or that I was incapable of making friends. It was just I had so much challenges going. My father struggled with substance abuse. I witnessed extreme domestic violence situations. I'm the oldest of my siblings and had to become a parent at a very young age. So there was just a lot going on. I was living firsthand the extreme impacts of intergenerational trauma. And and like I said before, it's a notion that I had no idea. I didn't know what to call it. I just knew that it was a challenge growing up. And then even more of a challenge when you are, when you look around and you don't see the rest of your peers struggling with that. You feel like you want to fit in. You don't want to sort of be the color of your skin, all that kind of stuff. And then you begin to learn about that. And I started to learn learn about that. I began to unpack that, sort of deal with my own healing, my own forgiveness towards my parents over the years, which has come a really long way. And then I began to increase my own knowledge capacity about that work and about the truth and about our shared history. And then fast forward to the work that I'm doing now, 
I'm coming to this realization that the work of systems change for reconciliation and probably the work of systems change for racial equity is generational. We have such a damaging, fractured history that we're inheriting, which is years upon years of attempted efforts of oppression and genocide and all that kind of stuff that it's going to take a while for things to change. So I'm gaining all of this knowledge and how can I have the knowledge of all of this damage and how it sort of impacts indigenous people today and systems today while raising a child. So that's the other reason why I'm so motivated for this work. If I have the chance to encourage some level of change for future generations, especially for the daughter I'm raising, who's going to be an indigenous woman one day. And, you know, these contemporary times tell us that indigenous women are not prioritized Many people are not prioritized in this country if you come from a racialized background. I mean, in the last few months, we learned that you can't be a Muslim family and simply go down the street for a walk safely without your life being at risk. So things like that. And it's the same thing for Indigenous women. There are literally thousands upon thousands being murdered, going missing, and not a whole lot being done. So it's like they just don't really matter. And it matters to me to create a world where my daughter will matter. And if I have the chance to do that in to some degree, I'm going to do that. So it sort of just led me to the work that I'm doing now. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your authentic story and for sharing with us some hard truths, you know, about the impact of residential schools, the impact of exclusion and racism over the hundreds of years since the settlers came to Canada. And you talk about the misunderstanding, the shame, the struggles, the substance abuse, the things that happened in your own family, but also in the broader community. And I think for us, what would be really interesting to better understand as we lead workplaces across Canada is what is the impact of all of that in Indigenous people when they work in a workplace that oftentimes doesn't understand the Indigenous culture or the Indigenous histories. Do you have any thoughts around what employers can do to create a more equitable, inclusive, and just respectful and welcoming workplace for Indigenous folks? Yeah, for sure. And I think in general, the impacts of the healing that we have to do individually are getting better. We are sort of entering into a time where it's becoming more known, the damaging impacts of history and all that kind of stuff. So as individuals, we're to a certain degree taking some of that power back. And and I don't find that it is as prevalent in the workplace as you might think. What I would say, though, is that there is a negative thought pattern that exists in society about Indigenous people. And likely the negative thought pattern permeates to employers and organizations and institutions where in the back of their mind there's this unconscious bias about who we are. This is exactly why it's so crucial to take a deep dive into our shared history. Historical context matters. Historical context shapes the current systems that we're all a part of, the current infrastructures of our organizations. And it's rooted in colonial paradigm of thought and practice. And so what I'm more interested in is finding ways to 
help navigate a shift and a change to our systems. I often say that gone are the days when we should expect Indigenous people to assimilate or to adapt or to fit in. And the time has come now for systems to really come to reconcile with a lot and to find ways for these systems to change and shift and adapt. There's a trend in populations. So the Indigenous population is the fastest growing segment in all of Canada, and it's a young population. And that should tell these systems something, or it should tell us a couple of things. The first thing it should tell employers is that there's going to be this untapped human resource coming up. But if they're not sort of really examining their organizational culture and making the shifts to create a culture where Indigenous people feel like they belong and really disrupting these thought patterns that likely do exist within their organizations, it's just going to be more of a challenge for Indigenous people to experience that retention that I think employers really are seeking because they're sort of operating and moving forward status quo not thinking that they really have to do a whole lot of changes. There's this mental model that we all exist, especially if you're in the human services field, that, you know, yeah, we exist to help this demographic or we exist to help vulnerable people and all this kind of stuff. So you're sort of high on yourself and high on the mandate of what you're tasked to do. What I know, what I'm learning is that when you lower the surface level of that, you really sort of identify, oh, hold on, wait a minute. I don't think we're doing enough to sort of change and shift and adapt and support these other, what we would call vulnerable populations, like the indigenous population, the black population, and other racialized groups and equity-seeking groups and all that kind of stuff. So less about the changes that indigenous people have to make and more about the changes that systems and organizations and institutions have to grapple with and begin to shift and change. Culture exists everywhere we go. And what we know is that there's only one acceptable way of doing life. And that's sort of rooted in this dominant narrative, this dominant culture that doesn't really make it easy to be an Indigenous person living and trying to thrive in this, in these workplaces and society. I mean, as an example, there's over 600 places of worship here in Calgary. Not one of those is designated for Indigenous people to come and practice our ceremonies. It's even hard to be a professional working for an organization where you can't show up and be your authentic self, especially when you're trying to move these initiatives forward and incorporate levels of oral history and oral tradition into the work that we're doing, whether it's designing a strategy, whether it's the creation of a cultural program. We face a lot of barriers, even being able to sort of light smudge in our workplaces. That's a huge component for elder involvement and wisdom. That practice represents a lot of things, and we struggle to even do things. And for me, it's sort of just a really easy thing to do, and it's a very necessary part of moving this work forward. Yet society and organizations say we can't because of whatever. You know, there's this fire policy, or there's this, there's that. But deep down, that's rooted in this thought pattern and belief about Indigenous people being barbaric and uncivilized. There's this dichotomy that exists this colonial dichotomy of the savage and the civilized. So there's a lot of sense-making that has to happen. People need to, and organizations really need to make some sense of why that historical context matters and how is it shaping the current organizational script that they're a part of. And that's the work that we're doing at the Calgary Foundation. There's no sort of guidebook on how to move the work of systems change for reconciliation forward. It's very new. And we're experimenting a lot, but what we do know is that there's deep levels of knowledge that are missing that inform the practice that we do. And so 
I'm doing a lot of design around truth-telling. With all these discoveries that are happening as well, I think the country is realizing, wow, we are literally unearthing a piece of history that uh, we can no longer turn a blind eye to and hoping that they realize the work that is needed to really embed this truth within the fabric of their organizations rather than sort of sort of knowing about it and viewing it as history when you have something tangible like children's remains you have no choice but to sort of work towards deep rooted truth once you begin to incorporate that knowledge system within the fabric of your organization making sure it becomes a competency for everyone no matter what their social location is no matter what position that they hold they will become acutely aware of the impacts and their responsibility behind amplifying that truth so that when you do hire that indigenous person they'll be understood and hopefully they they will not be treated in the ways that we are they won't face barriers in moving this work forward they'll sort of just be accepted and supported it's not it's not like that these days not yet anyway not yet, no. And it's so interesting, you know, when you share with us about the historical context and how it shapes workplaces and the way that systems and policies and procedures, programs, activities, services are designed and delivered really hasn't been done historically through an Indigenous lens at all. And as more and more organizations are really trying to grapple with how they do that, I think they have to start with their own self-reflection, you know, what is sense-making to you and how is that different from sense-making and truth-telling through that Indigenous historical and cultural lens. And I remember the story of a few years back, I worked in an organization and we hosted an Indigenous listening circle between leaders of the organization and between Indigenous leaders. And I remember some of the comments made afterwards about how it was hard for individuals to sit through such a long listening circle and how it was difficult for them to adapt their style to the oral traditions of story sharing, to have the patience and the resilience even to sit through a session like that. And that is a small example, but I think it's a significant example of what as individuals we need to do to learn how to be more culturally sensitive and culturally competent, to open a mind and to lean into being okay with being uncomfortable with things that we're not used to. So, there is so much work that needs to be done at the systemic level, as you said, and at this personal growth level as well. So the government of Canada now has just announced a new statutory holiday, a federal holiday called the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which is going to be on September 30th. And it's this new date that I think has just come out out of perhaps the evolution of the national consciousness that we have in Canada with regards to the need for Canadians all across the country to make time to learn about truth and reconciliation. What does this day mean to you, Tim? And what do you think employers can do to actually take advantage of this day of reflection? Yeah, I think it's definitely a significant step in, I guess, formalizing some levels of recognition and responsibility. On one hand, I'm, I'm supportive of a day like that. I'm supportive of trying to amplify and surface the need for truth-telling, the need for 
this dialogue to happen within really any sphere of influence that we're a part of with our families, with our friends and the communities that we're a part of, or even the, the organizations, especially the organizations that we're a part of. Where I'm cautious about is the work that has to happen all the time, year round, and that simply identifying a day in recognition of that shouldn't relieve people of the responsibility to continue to work towards reconciliation throughout the whole year. So I say that I love celebrating June 21st, which is National Indigenous Peoples Day. It's a time for us to sort of pause in celebration and really recognize the contributions and significance of, you know, the leadership that exists for First Nations communities. I would say the same thing for September 30th, you know, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation that, you know, we finally have a day to really honor a lot of these survivors that are still with us. We have an opportunity to intentionally honor as a country the loss that has occurred that we are, again, just unearthing from a lot of these discoveries at residential school sites through children's remains. So, yeah, I think it's necessary. It's been a long time coming. I'm not sure why we hadn't done it before. There's a video clip that I often incorporate into the work that I do by Murray Sinclair, where he's addressing the question, why can't you just get over it? And that's a question that I've heard from time and time again. You know, this there's this attitude across the country. Like, first of all, the country and some people in some instances are leaning on a lot of myths that indigenous, you know, indigenous people get all of this and whatever. And I grew up facing a lot of these myths. And so the question for them becomes, you know, why can't you just get over it? And Murray Sinclair in this video responds very eloquently. And he says, it's such an unfair question for indigenous people. It's why aren't we asking the United States to get over 9-11? Or why aren't we asking this country to get over World War II instead of celebrating them once a year? Or why aren't we asking all of you to get over these losses and stop celebrating your loved ones who you've lost over the years? The moment we begin to talk about recognition and remembering for Indigenous people, it becomes problematic for the general of society. So I hope this day really is taken seriously and treated with as much significance and respect as any other day of remembrance because a lot of these survivors are still with us and people don't realize that they survived. They survived a portion of their life, like their childhood in a lot of instances. And we're witnessing a lot of the ones who did not survive these institutions. And so it's very significant. It's very important and it should encourage a lot more dialogue at the dinner table or at the boardroom table in a lot of instances. Yeah, absolutely. The reflection, the importance of it is really in the community. And I think oftentimes we may not be aware of the impact of these days on communities. And it makes me think about the need for each and every one of us to truly do deep listening not just listening to prepare a response or to think about our points of view, but deep listening to really open our mind and try to put ourselves in other people's shoes, in their lived experiences, right? For somebody to come back and say, hey, that's not that important, or you should get over it. It's really a sense of my reality and my worldview is more important than yours. And I think we have to get away from that. We need to expand our mindset where those blind spots, those biases 
come uncovered. And we can only do that through listening and sharing and reflecting with that open mind, that empathy, and that compassion. So thank you so much, Tim, for sharing about that. Now, if there were just, let's say, three things that you can recommend to workplaces, what are some of the things they can do now towards truth and reconciliation? What would they be? Well, I think that there are deep levels of context that are missing. I think that it's a characteristic of white supremacy to want to work towards solutions and fix a problem when you're faced with complex issues. And in the work that I'm doing uh, around system change for reconciliation, it's not that easy. It's not that black and white. There's a lot of grieving that has to happen. There's a lot of healing that has to happen. And there's a lot of context that needs to be weaved into the fabric of organizations. But there's also a lot of sense-making that has to occur. And so, yeah, for organizations, I would encourage, like, the exciting thing is that the conversation is happening a lot more these days. The interest from organizations is surfacing. So that's the beauty of it. And maybe I can reflect on the work that I'm doing with the Calgary Foundation. And in 2017, I was brought on at a very senior level leadership position. That's a role that I had to get used to just because I was never offered the opportunity to sort of make decisions without going through this person or this person or this person or the hierarchy that exists within our organizations. I was sort of given a license, if you will, to really try to experiment with what I was doing and what I was designing and how I was facilitating it. And and then as a result, for four years later, there's shifts that are happening for our organization culturally. There's really promising things that are happening. There's lots of lessons that have been learned. Organizations have to realize that this work will likely impact and should impact their employees at an individual level. So you sort of refer to that in the setup of this question, but it's not as simple as turning it off at the end of the day, because what I'm doing at the Calgary Foundation is impacting my colleagues from an individual place first. And they're sort of grappling with that, reconciling with that, and trying to approach the work that they currently do. It doesn't really matter what roles that they hold, but they're approaching it and they're including their work by looking through a lens of reconciliation at this time. So then it starts at an individual level and should sort of manifest and ripple out into the organization and the work that we do. I mean, that's the beauty of it. I think historically, Indigenous people have always been extracted from. We've been extracted from in land and resources and children. We continue to be extracted from in children in these contemporary times. It has the risk of showing up as knowledge extraction. So an organization might have an interest in moving this work forward. They might seek out an elder to sort of come and uh, share some insights with them, but then they don't really do anything after that. They sort of just take, 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 take this knowledge. And so I'm less interested about knowledge extraction and I'm more excited and interested in mobilizing that knowledge. So how can you, it's not enough to sit down with an elder. It's not enough for organizations to attend an awareness session or an online course simply with the intention to increase their level of understanding. If that's the only motivation that they have, then they're being no less extractive than settler ancestors before them. The question is, how are they mobilizing what they're learning in the workplaces that they operate in? How are they 
making a commitment and establishing that commitment with, within the culture of that organization so that it becomes a responsibility of everyone working within those institutions. That's sort of the place that we are experiencing right now at the Calgary Foundation that it's showing up in small ways, but still really significant ways. So, you know, a few years ago, we introduced the task of including the work of reconciliation and now racial equity within our performance development plans and our performance evaluation. So now all of our colleagues and all of our staff at Calgary Foundation, including myself, our performance is being measured on this. So we have to identify an area of reconciliation or strengthening relationships with Indigenous communities that we want to work on in the next year. And then come performance evaluation time, we're measured on that. Our performance is measured on that. So then that becomes our responsibility. We're having the same conversations around racial equity in all of our job postings that you'll see from Calgary Foundation, the first thing that you'll see is our organizational commitment to reconciliation and racial equity. It doesn't mean to say that potential applicants have to be experts or even aware of some of that work, but they do have to realize that they're coming into an organizational culture and structure that amplifies and upholds this work. And regardless of the the roles that they hold or being hired for or, or are applying for, that to a certain degree, they're going to be involved and responsible for moving this work forward as well. There's just so much context missing within the structure of these organizations. They have to find ways to embed it and hire senior level people to move this work forward. It's so hard to move the work forward if you're coming into an organization at a junior level, trying to impact change, trying to move it forward. And you have to go through this hierarchy of structure, which is really problematic. And you referred to circle process. And we can learn a lot from Indigenous culture. We can learn a lot from Indigenous paradigms of thought and practice. Circle process is meant to give voice to the voiceless. It doesn't matter. Traditionally, you know, we had leaders in our community, but that leader was, wasn't was the one calling all of the shots. They would sit in circle and they would get voices from everyone and make sure everyone was heard. They recognized that solutions lied within the diversity of everyone. And so people struggle with that in this day and age because they're used to the boss or the, you know, the CEO calling all of the shots and going through this hierarchy, these lines of communication where, you know, there's so much more to learn from things like circle process that you can lean on the wisdom of community and lean on the wisdom of everyone. And eventually you'll come to a collective decision that resonates with everyone. And so, yeah, just so much to learn around different ways of knowing, different ways of being, and then ultimately different ways of doing. Yeah, thank you so much, Tim. I think you've given us a lot of food for thought in terms of what we can do as individuals to push ourselves forward beyond learning, but to commit to action and to create accountability in organizations for following through. I think that's something that a lot of organizations try to do but don't know how to do that well or you've got a great leader and then he leaves the organization and then the next person doesn't know what to do and so it speaks to me about if you build these changes into the systems and into the culture of the organization then you'll be much more successful in creating that ecosystem that it's going to be inclusive not just for today but for future generations and so on that note we're going to wrap up the podcast today thank you again so much for a lot of thought-provoking 
stories and recommendations that you're sharing with us on what we can do as a workplace, as a leader, as a Canadian, as a person for caring for each other and for just creating a better world for all of us. So thank you again for your time and for sharing of your wisdom with us today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. That was Tim Fox from the Calgary Foundation. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Leader Talks. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. To stay up to date with Leader Talks or to find out transcripts of previous podcast episodes, please visit ccdi.ca slash podcast podcast.